Hi, welcome. Um, I'm Olga Visa, director of the Hirshhorn, and it is my pleasure the formal opening of the Uncertainty of Objects and Ideas recent sculpture, which is a show organized by the Hirshhorn Museum and curated by Anne Elgood, who's sitting here uh, on your left, first one on your left, who is associate curator for contemporary art here at the Hirshhorn and joined the staff about a year and a half ago. I'm really, truly excited about this exhibition, The Uncertainty of Objects and Ideas, not just because it opens our fall season on such a high, high note, but I think this exhibition really affirms several key aspects of the direction that we're trying to take the museum. And first, I think it affirms our longstanding commitment to bringing some of the best and most intriguing artists who are working today. I think it also showcases very well our new emphasis on inviting artists to be collaborators and creative partners with us in presenting and developing the program. And in particular, several installations drawn from our collection, which several of the artists sitting on the panel tonight um, developed in tandem with us and with Anne. Um, also, I think it, it demonstrates both this exhibition and these related collection projects what a tremendous resource we have here to draw from on the Hirshhorn's collection and to really put uh, in a very active dynamic uh, the collection uh, in context with the contemporary moment. And I think there is this wonderful dialogue that has emerged um, through that process. I want to commend Anne Elgood uh, for the incredible work uh, that she's done in bringing and inviting these artists to come together for this exhibition uh, and collaborating with others to make this all possible. And Anne, I think in a year and a half at the Hirshhorn, has really left already uh, an indelible mark on the museum. The show, in essence, takes up the entire second floor together with a collection in context installation, some 20,000 square feet. And again, I think it takes tremendous faith uh, and vision to work in such an open-ended way um, as Anne has done. And I think you will agree, for those of you who've seen the exhibition, that it's truly spectacular. Um, Anne joined the staff, as I mentioned, a year and a half ago in March of 2005. Uh, in, in addition to curating this exhibition, she also did this past summer the project with Jim Lambie uh, in our lobby. And she's also done some very insightful installations herself, uh, drawing on the works from the collection. Prior to joining the Hirshhorn, she worked uh, uh, as the New York-based curator for Peter Norton and the, for the Family Foundation. And before that, she was an associate curator at the New Museum in New York. She's organized exhibitions there at the New Museum out of sight, fictional architectural spaces, and Candice Bright's The Babel Series. This program tonight is part of our In Conversation series, which is an ongoing series that we just launched this past year that is really intended to provide a forum um, here at the museum um, with you, our audience, to bring forward ideas central to contemporary practice. The subject of tonight's conversation is how both the history of sculpture and the nature of contemporary life has impacted um, four talented artists who are joining uh, and on stage, together with Johanna Burton, one of the contributors uh, to the exhibition um, catalog, who are going to, Anne and Johanna are going to act as co-moderators. Uh, they are going to introduce the artists. Our guest artists are Franz West, I'm from Anne going forward, uh, Franz West, Rachel Harrison, Charles Long, and Mark Hanforth. And they have been incredible partners with us. We've so enjoyed, and I know how much Anne has enjoyed the dialogue with you. Uh, to introduce Johanna, Johanna is, uh, as I mentioned, contributor to the catalog. She's an art historian and critic living in New York. She's currently a doctoral candidate uh, at the Department of Art and Archaeology at Princeton University, 
where she's writing a dissertation on the role of appropriation in art of the 1980s. She attended the Whitney Independent Study Program as a critical studies fellow, and she received a degree from NYU's Department of Performance Studies, and her work has appeared in publications including Art Forum and Parquette. She's on the faculty uh, at the Center for Curatorial Studies at Bard College, as well as the faculty of the Visual Arts Division at Columbia University's School of the Arts. And she recently edited an anthology of writings on Cindy Sherman, which will appear in November, um, and which is published by MIT Press. Before I hand the conversation over to Anne and Johanna, I just want to quickly um, bring some dates to your attention of upcoming programs and ask you to take our calendar as you, as you leave um, today. We have on November 8th, uh, Meet the Artist Talk with Jesper Eust, who's the artist who's featured in our black box space um, here on the lower level. November 17th, Rob Storr, who's the director of the 2007 Venice Biennale, is going to be um, delivering the, the annual James T. Dimitrian Lecture. And on January 31st, uh, in the new year, uh, we will have a Meet the Artist program, a dialogue actually between Matthew Barney and Nancy Spector, uh, curator at the Guggenheim. And I should mention that date has been rescheduled uh, due to Matthew's schedule. So uh, mark that calendar on your calendar January 31st. So now please join me in welcoming Anne Elgood and Johanna Burton and our panelists for the evening. Thanks, Olga. Um, first, I want to just thank Olga Viso and Carrie Brower for everything in the last year and a half since I came to the Hirshhorn, for just being so supportive of um, projects that I've proposed. And this sculpture exhibition has just been a really a wonderful joy to work on. And I really appreciate the opportunity. Um, what I'm going to do is just explain the structure for tonight's talk. And then um, I will say a few words. Johanna will come up and say a few words, and both of our comments are just meant to kind of start the conversation, contextualize the discussion, and then we will pose a number of questions to the four artists present. Um, I will also give short um, introductions to the artists, and um, then we'll leave time for questions from you. When we start talking, or shortly, you're going to start to see a slideshow behind the people on the stage, and that slideshow is um, just meant to be kind of visual food for thought. Um, we aren't going to be referring to those images specifically, but it's just something for you to look at and think about. It's a combination of a number of works, um, sculptural works throughout the history of the 20th century um, that maybe are a nice way to contextualize the work that we're looking at in the show. And then there are images of works in the exhibition, including some details and some installation shots of the artists. Um, and then there are also works from our collection that are pulled out um, and currently on view in the Collection and Context galleries. Is that too loud? Okay. Um, I also want to dedicate tonight's conversation to Marsha Tucker, who died last week after a 10-year battle with cancer. Um, Marsha Tucker was a curator at the Whitney Museum of Art and then founded the New Museum of Art in 1997, at, um, incredibly, at the age of 37 which speaks volumes about her creativity, tenacity, and indomitable spirit. Marcia was an inventive and daring curator who inspired many people throughout her life, and she certainly inspired me. The new museum was my first museum job, and Marcia was an incredible mentor and a genuine role model for me. 
She was someone who truly embraced discussion and debate about contemporary art, and so I know if she were here, she would really enjoy tonight's conversation. So I just wanted to acknowledge her. Um, well, I'm so honored to have these four artists on this stage. It's really a privilege. And I just want to give you a little bit of background about them. Um, hopefully you're a little bit familiar with their work, and hopefully you've seen the exhibition upstairs. If not, um, I hope the discussion tonight encourages you to go upstairs and see their work in person. Um, let me start with Mark on the end, next to Johanna. Mark was born in 1969 in Hong Kong and lives and works in Miami. He studied at the Slade School of Fine Arts in London, and in Frankfurt, he has had solo shows at the Kunsthaus Zurich, Le Consortium Dijon, the Hammer Museum at UCLA, and Gavin Brown's Enterprise in New York, among others. His group shows include the Palais de Tokyo in Paris, the Whitney Biennial, ZKM at uh, Karlsruhe, uh, Charlottenburg, Copenhagen, and the Biennial of Lyon. He is doing a commission with us, and early next year you will see a new large-scale sculpture at the front of the museum, and we're really, really excited about it and um, really enjoying the process of working with Mark to realize this piece. He also has upcoming outdoor commissions at the Dallas Museum of Art and a public work in the city of Grenoble in France. Uh, let's see. Next to Mark is Charles Long. Charles was born in 1958 in New Jersey and currently resides in Los Angeles. He got a BFA from the University of Arts in Philadelphia. He did the Whitney Independent Study Program and has an MFA from Yale. Charles has had over 30 solo exhibitions at such venues as Site Santa Fe, um, the St. Louis Museum of Art, Orange County Museum of Art, uh, London Projects UK, and Tanya Banakdar in New York City. He's the recipient of a Guggenheim Fellowship two NEA grants, two Pollock Krasner grants, and a Louis Comfort Tiffany grant. He has taught at the California Institute of the Arts, the Arts Center College of, Design, of Art and Design, and Otis College of Art and Design at Harvard. His work has been included in the 1997 Biennial at the Whitney, Open Ends at the Museum of Modern Art, Performance Anxiety at the MCA Chicago, Happiness at the Mori Art Museum, and I could go on and on. He was recently in a show called Gone Formalism at the ICA in Philadelphia, which was curated by Janelle Porter, who's in the audience, and I expect her to be asking uh, discerning questions later. Um, next to Charles is Rachel Harrison. Rachel gradu graduated from Wesleyan University in 1989 with a BA in Fine Art. She's been living and working in New York ever since. Uh, Rachel has had solo exhibitions at the Migros Museum in Zurich, San Francisco Museum of Art, the Milwaukee Art Museum, as well as Green Naftali Gallery in New York City, um, Christian Nagel Gallery in Cologne, and Transmission Gallery in Glasgow. Her work has been included recently in the Berlin Biennial, the Carnegie International, the Venice Biennale, the Whitney Biennial, the Brooklyn Museum of Art, PS1, and MoMA. And next to Rachel is Franz West, who probably needs no introduction. Franz is... Um, was born in 1947 in Vienna. He studied sculpture at the Academy of Fine Arts in Vienna between 1977 and 82. He has exhibited internationally for over 30 years. In 1970, the Gallery Hamburger in Vienna mounted the first solo exhibition of his works. 
Important group exhibitions include the Royal Academy of Arts London, Museum of Contemporary Art in Los Angeles, MoMA, the Denver Museum, the Carnegie International in Pittsburgh, um, numerous solo exhibitions also at Whitechapel, Kunsthalle Vienna, Gagosian Gallery in New York, Museo Nacional, the Reina Sofia in Madrid, and I could go on and on and on about Franz's exhibition history, so we'll leave it at that. Um, the most common question posed to curators, I think, after you mount an exhibition is, why did you want to do this show, and how did you choose these artists? So I thought by way of introduction, I would just give a little bit of a background about this particular project. When I joined the Hirshhorn a year and a half ago, I knew I wanted to organize an exhibition around sculpture, in part because I found myself particularly absorbed by sculptural works, and I was eager to explore what it was about the sculpture that felt so relevant and so exciting to me. I also feel that this type of sculpture in the exhibition, sculpture that's precarious, at times even fragile, perhaps a bit esoteric, and at times challenging, work that poses more questions than it offers answers, does not get the kind of attention that I think it deserves, and I think that museums have a responsibility to show this type of work. The proposition of organizing a medium-specific exhibition immediately begs the question, why focus on one medium when artists are so often approaching art making through a range of mediums? Johanna Burton, in her catalog essay, beautifully traces the history of artists and historians attempting to articulate various and multifarious aspects of sculptural practice, particularly since the 1960s, and makes a very compelling argument for why we should examine sculpture today. And she'll be talking about that, I'm sure, tonight. To me, sculpture as a medium feels particularly capable of taking on something of the quality and sensibility of our current cultural condition in a way that is powerfully apt, yet remains somewhat ambiguous. If our historical moment is one of continuous flux, unpredictability, and fragility, but with simultaneous exuberance, then this sculpture seems to me to capture that feeling in a profound and impressive way, in a way that certainly warrants our attention. I should emphasize that I was not interested in doing a survey of contemporary culture, sculpture. I was not interested in trying to include the diverse practices that would fall under the category of sculpture or to make any kind of general statements about sculpture. Rather, I wanted to articulate something more specific that I saw happening and to focus on works that I felt would resonate together. As opposed to a survey then, I would argue that these sculptures, for all their difference, have several important things in common. The first framework I gave the show was to focus on artists who committed themselves to the process of making three-dimensional objects in space that are meant to be viewed from multiple perspectives. This is opposed to a common recent uh, sculptural practice that embraces installation and works that intersect with architecture specifically or works that try to create an immersive environment. The objects in this show are sculptures that, as Barnett Newman, as Barnett Newman once said, you might bump into but not, as he coyly put it, because you're backing up to look at a painting, but because the objects inhabit space with you and are undeniably physical and present. They command attention and they command space. The artists also... Ooh. Okay, testing. The artists also share other important approaches and strategies within sculpture. Distinct from what is sometimes now referred to as a post-studio artists, these artists are, much, are very much studio artists who spend a great deal of time in their studios making objects. And surprisingly few of them have assistance at all. I'm, I'm dumbfounded by the things that they make on their own without any help. 
Um, their use of materials is thoughtful and provocative, and the works include both handmade elements and man-made or existing or found commodities, oftentimes both in any given work. Does this sound okay? These artists are immersed simultaneously in the history of sculpture and its formal languages and contemporary culture, and their works are noteworthy for the abundance of references. Moreover, the artists give form to the formless and are absorbed in the challenge of making physical forms out of intangible or theoretical ideas. From vast spaces in the galaxy with no light to ideological positions, from subconscious states of mind and anxieties to fleeting weather patterns. This work adopts a healthy level of skepticism and asks us to question everything, especially if it is restrictive, prescribed, or orthodox in any way. Yet because of its energy, vitality, and tactility, it remains ultimately life-affirming. Perhaps most importantly, this sculpture is open-ended. It affirms that our lives benefit from resisting single meanings or interpretations in favor of mul multiplicity and indeed idiosyncrasy. Thanks. So now I'm going to welcome Johanna up here to give a few remarks, and then we'll start speaking with the artists. Hello, and thank you so much for having me. Thank you to everyone at the Hirshhorn and to Anne Elgood, from whom I continue to learn an immense amount um, and for producing such an amazing show. I'm only going to actually um, make a, a few comments because I'm going to be a lot less interesting than the artists, I think. And um, while the art historian is usually called upon to explain things, it's not going to happen in this show, so just so you know. Um, I am going to sort of uh, give you a few a taste of the issues that I was trying to deal with in the essay and how that essay came about. So in a sense, I'm doing the notes after the essay was written, which is a kind of nice way um, to be able to approach some of the ideas um, that I think will come up and hopefully will be discussed uh, on the panel. When Anne first began discussing with me a major exhibition that she was in the very first stages of conceiving, she worded her interests and the parameters she was wildly circling at that time more in terms of intuition than in terms of facts or specific objects or even at first individual artists. She wanted, she explained, to think about sculpture, to think more specifically about sculpture as it's being thought today. And in fact, it was what she was thinking about virtually all the time. Um, a little obsessive, actually. Uh, and it seemed intuitively correct, even pressing to do so, though she wasn't yet able to articulate just why that might be. I immediately agreed that there was a kind of urgency to thinking sculpture, nodded my head too, vigorously, and then realized I had nothing much myself with which to back this assertion up. It's always a kind of sad position to find yourself as an art historian, um, sort of with nothing at all <laughs> to back up uh, your ideas. But I'm starting actually um, to find the value in the moments that produce such kind of oblique self-reflexivity. And I think some of that happens actually um, in the show that, that's upstairs. Indeed, at that moment, we looked at each other with sculpture, if no actual, actual sculptures between us, and considered just what such a vague urgency that immediately spawned excitement, but also truly stumped us meant. I should also say this word urgency, um, I, I say in all earnestness, and I was happy to find after having written this that um, Charles Long's uh, wall text has a, a very succinct phrase, which is uh, urgent but indirect. Um, he's in three words said what I'll 
continue blabbing on about here for a couple more minutes. Um, they're always more succinct in the end, the artists, I think, than we are. So over the months, we had a lot of discussions about sculpture, and I have to say it's always such a pleasure as a writer to have these ongoing dialogues um, with curators and artists. And as Anne got further and further along with her thinking about the show, she found that the difficulties inherent to this idea, sculpture, seemed to increase rather than decrease. And by this point, I was writing the essay for the catalog. So we were both very excited and perplexed by the increasing level of precision and the increasingly um, high level of opacity that we both experienced in the face of such a seemingly straightforward word, sculpture. Um, at this point, I think Anne's decision to take the notion of, of uncertainty head on rather than try to quiet it forcefully highlighted and even made the kind of productive, imminent stubbornness of her task and perhaps of sculpture itself into the subject of inquiry. Happily, I found myself in much the same boat. For sculpture, I began thinking as is, of course, considered a medium, but just what that means today is hardly clear. We've been delivered, some argue, um, into a post whoa, post-medium post condition, um, sorry about that, a designation which is meant less to indicate a move away from things and I think to suggest an increasing impulse to erase distinctions between things. So I'm interested in actually maintaining the idea of, of a medium here. There are, of course, both positive and negative effects of such erasure. On the one hand, a seeming total liberation from cast, past conventions and on the other, an unfortunate relativism. Indeed, thinking the term medium, given the nine artists assembled in this exhibition, a viewer is faced with a dizzying array of materials and means. But this is to confuse materials and modes of production with medium. And I want to hold on to this distinction for a moment, for I still think some attention to medium, with all its complicated connotations, in a sense gets to what is so compelling about the question of what just what sculpture is, or perhaps better said, what it does, in a more general way today. In this vein, medium specificity seems more a helpful oxymoron than an actual category. I just want to be clear here that I'm not so interested in making comments about what counts as a valid sculptural medium, and more in thinking the medium of sculpture in a more structural way. Very, very clearly put, this amounts to the following rather simple questions. What does it mean to say as an artist today that you make sculpture? What does the title sculptor mean at a moment when one needn't define oneself any more precisely than artist? Um, you needn't even say that you make anything, um, usually. Uh, and so to actually say I'm a sculptor is, is kind of an interesting position. One conclusion that I came to is that the very notion of medium holds within it a kind of future anteriority. A medium is something that was something that will become something else. That's how all the works in this show have come to be. Their parts, their bodies, have moved, coaxed, coddled, crushed, and coerced themselves into position. A medium is what is passed through and still bears the traces of that passing. Still, all this thinking about medium, I quickly realized, got me nowhere fast, though I didn't really mind. In trying to posit some essential being that applied to all sculpture, it eluded me all the more. Good, I thought, though I still hadn't even written a page of my essay. So I wasn't going to get to the heart of the matter, literally, and I began thinking about myself, isn't that the way, and how I experience sculpture, and perhaps how you experience sculpture. This is hardly a new way to approach the matter either. Art historians, artists, critics, audiences 
have always understood that sculpture presents its own set of circumstances in which it can be seen. Sculpture has been accused because of its three-sidedness of being aggressive, aloof, anthropomorphic, theatrical, always in the way, hard to display, impossible to photograph, pretty bad-mannered. All these jabs, I think, but maybe it's just shy. But the nature of sculpture's obstinacy has something to do with the viewer's desire to place herself and the resistance imposed upon her body by a thing occupying space simultaneously with her. So this is probably kind of obvious. Everyone knows this. Um, but at least I could start writing. My essay, which I won't detail here, and you don't want me to, starts with these premises and a few of the points which I've touched on, and just a couple more with which I'll end in order to have them taken up on taken up and expanded by the artists. Sculpture is often quite um, best defined by saying what it isn't instead of what it is. This is how Rosalind Krauss got close to it in her famous 1978 essay, Surviving the, Ch Surviving, also surviving, but surveying the changing climate of sculpture in the hands of artists like Robert Smithson, Nancy Holt, Bruce Nauman, and Alice Aycock. For Krauss, sculpture was not architecture and not landscape. But of course, to make this point is also to show the way it was increasingly relying on, even while challenging both. Today, some 30, days, 30 years later, sculpture might be defined as opposed to other things. I'd like to speculatively and hopefully say that it has a particular aptitude for troubling easy consumption, though of course hardly fully. But there are easier oppositions, those held up for ages. Sculpture is not painting, one would say, or film or photography, but I actually think the contingencies between these mediums is more complex, and perhaps the distinctions between them not so obvious as one might think. Uh, in fact, many of the, the people in this show use um, more than one medium in order to produce sculpture. Rather, I'd like to distinguish sculpture precisely from that word that it is most usually assumed in intimacy with, installation. We can perhaps discuss the distinctions and similarities between sculpture and installation, which is perhaps the most ubiquitous term in art today. But I'd like to suggest, perhaps mysteriously here now, since there's no time for expansion, that installation acknowledges the viewer as central to the work, provides or professes to provide or satisfy an experience, where sculpture continues to posit itself as central to the work. Uh, it's glad you're looking at it, but it really doesn't need you. Um, some people would disagree. So with these comments in place, I'm likely furthering, further from finding an answer to the question, the proposal, the verb, sculpture than I was before I even started writing my essay. But it is the perplexity and the force with which it keeps me asking that I think perhaps give, gives any definition to sculpture uh, for me at all. So with that, um, I believe Anne will probably start with the first question. Thanks very much uh, for having me. This will be brief, because I'm just going to pose a question and then hand it back to Rachel or Franz, perhaps. Um, can you hear me? Yes. Great. Uh, it's going to say that Johanna, I think, posed the first question in her remarks, which is, what does it mean to the artists to um, specifically identify yourself as a sculptor, and what does it mean to um, really embrace that medium uh, and, and not identify yourself so much as an artist, more generally speaking. Franz, do you want to talk about that? Yeah, I didn't <laughs> get uh, so much the question. Okay. Uh, but, uh, it's about this, how one feels if he is sculpture. Yes, also. exactly. 
Um, you know, I don't know how somebody else feels. I, I think about maybe somebody else. But it's a grown thing in my case. I did begin in a time where it was not, uh, uh, what wouldn't have been usual to do sculptures. It was called objects. And uh, with the sculpture, this came. Uh, th th this was uh, coming up by time, and now I got really sculpture because it did, as, as it was possible to make sculptures again, I was interested how to do this, and it, this interests me still uh, now. Uh, I principally began with, with um, let's say objects that was not sculpturing. So this was not for, a cont for contemplate, contemplative reception. It wasn't thought about this, more or less for um, self-performing. You entered uh, the presentation and had to reflect it. So th this is not uh, the, I think, it's not the way of, 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 of sculpture. Sculpture uh, is more uh, a passive reception, I think. So, and the position of the sculpture is to do this, and it's, uh, for me it's as handcraft, um, as, as a very lazy kind of handcraft. Um, so, uh, going to this moment where the, 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 where the material response. This is an interesting moment and I did never learn about this in school. As, uh, some philosophers have this idea that material response, uh, that, that, that it have an own, um, that it's something like, like the, in German idealism it was the, the Geist that hailed the, 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 the Spirit, I not spirit. I, I cannot talk Swedish. English. So that, that's about uh, okay. my thing. Thank you. So here we go. Who would? Still not working. Who would? Uh, who would? Charles, uh, <laughs> why Are you ready? Okay, I guess. Are you ready? <laughs> Um, okay. Um, I, I'm not sure. I, I think I make sculpture probably. I think I always, when I when I wanted to make things. I mean, originally when everyone goes to art school, they paint and they draw and do all that kind of stuff. But I I um I really like things, and I think that's basically what it comes down to. So I always have much more confidence in 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 this table and in this bottle and in in things that are in front of me and things I can sit on and feel and, and that's basically the reasoning and it's in a way it's it's uh, my feeling a little bit was that everything else was kind of like a translation of a thing and and why not just go for the thing it seemed the most direct approach and it also seems a kind of language that that everybody could understand because everybody knows what a thing is it's hard to get it wrong really and that would seem to be kind of simple as well so it's not, it's not a very complex answer but yeah. <laughs> Well, I, I like that, and I'll segue off of it and uh, differ as well, because, um, yeah, the, the, the wonderful thing about sculpture is that, yes, everybody knows what a thing is in much the way that everybody knows what a person is, and that creating the autonomous art object 
in a sense, reenacts our notion of self or thing. And yet, uh, those concepts are really uh, quite strange because, you know, we are a collection of, you know, how many meals have we eaten in our lifetime? Um, I'm using a language that, where did it come from? And how big is my vocabulary? And how much bigger could it be? And then I would say something different. In other words, there's no self. Uh, there are no objects. Um, and yet, then, you know, I still have to pay that Amex bill when it comes, or they'll lock me up. So I'm interested in this particular uh, illusion of autonomy, as I call it, um, one that won't go away, a persistent illusion. And so by working within the convention of sculpture, I can address this thing that just is very unstable. It's a paradox. Uh, and I love paradoxes because basically they're efficient. Um, once you break things open and it becomes, uh, as uh, you might have used the word uh, relativism, uh, you, know, how, you know, how interesting is that? I think I feel that a lot of work that um, has sort of transgressed, you know, the, the, the movement towards installation um, seemed at times to rely on a notion of the avant-garde that they were, uh, you know, breaking open these conventions. And I felt like, well, once you do that, in a sense, it's like taking the net off of a tennis court. Um, you know, it starts to be, you know, what, what's, where's the traction? Uh, so I think that a paradox is a very, you know, it's, it's a terse way of getting to something. Then, what I think is fantastic about sculpture, um, I, I have sort of emphasized by um, repressing certain things, language, the body, and architecture. I would say those three things in particular. By trying to work within abstraction, uh, I feel that this object can now function in other ways other than a narrative way, which may be that the work functions as a model. Um, a model for what? We don't know. The person who encounters it goes through almost a, a kind of uh, a moment where their imaginings are being hung on this thing. If you leave it open, they've got nothing else to do with it. So unfortunately, I find a lot of sculpture these days leaning towards the anecdotal. So sculptures tend to have a lot of things that people can hang on. Um, for instance, I would say like work by Tom Friedman or um, Roxy Payne, uh, work that uh, is very engaging um, dealing with issues and, and all, but I feel that you almost don't need the object. Time's up. Okay, thanks for coming. Yeah. Are these any of Anyway, this is some thoughts. Question about the category of sculpture. And our, our belief in there it goes again. Okay. Um, because there were a few. The other artist just said that I could. Sure, sure. Is that too close? No, Is that no, okay? closer. Um, in terms of what Mark was saying about having faith in something in the world, what Charles just said about paying credit card bills and reality, one of the things you have to confront when you make sculpture is gravity, even if you're games with it. And it's something painters and video artists, I mean, maybe video artists, not that I think one is better because I think art is art, but I do think that there's something about 
sculpture being so rooted in the laws of physics, even if it's not about that. Um, my interest in things really comes from maybe art being a thing in the world, and a thing in the world that I had to, find, for myself, discover on my own and negotiate in the world. And I, you know, it was like a joke at one point that I wanted to go to the supermarket and find an artwork, and, you know, and, that, and it would be through a representation on a cereal box somehow or something. I would, I would find art in the world in these different places. But the thingness in the world, to me, then does have to come back to the body somehow. Not in terms of uh, identity, but in terms of presence and in terms of, in terms of what the body is as a combination of the, the emotive and the psychological and the cerebral, like all the things that we are, you know, besides eating all the meals and thinking all the thoughts and being really tired and having jet lag and whatever it might be that, I mean, I just even find that I feel different with my body in front of one of my sculptures, depending on how I feel on a given day. And that can happen in front of a painting and it can happen with reading a poem, but there's something very um, passive and, and subtle, which I think Franz was talking about, about sculpture in terms of also it's maybe, I, I don't know. I want to quote a Patti Smith song, but I don't know if I should. Anyway, I'll pass this on to Anne. I don't know if I have anything to say about, I mean, these are all the questions that I think become really interesting in terms of um, figuring out how literally when we walk into a room of sculpture, they operate and how, in fact, our vision is engaged as an audience or, or a maker or any combination of those things. And so I, I like this idea of both the thingness in the world, but also the body, the body of the viewer becoming thing-like also in this kind of discursive dance between these objects. And I don't know if it was really clear what I was trying to say. By the way, I think there are a lot of great installation artists. It's in, important to be polemical um, right now at this moment because no, nobody wants to do that. So I, I just want to say for you installation artists out there, like it's, to, it's good still. But, but I, I feel like making an argument about sculpture is also really important. And the difference for me has to do with a kind of um, attention that's been paid to making viewers feel really good in a space through installation or feel central or feel like everything is kind of geared towards providing experience. And, and I keep thinking about the way that, that all of you have spoken about um, the kind of contingency of sculpture and the fact that your body is called into question in a particular way. So there's a kind of bodily knowledge that seems to be um, at, at question. And for me, that has to do with a kind of criticality. So maybe my question for all of you would be at this particular moment in the art world, um, having kind of identified yourselves with thingness, how might you um, think about yourself in, in relationship to the kinds of dialogues that are or aren't happening? I don't know if that's a too big of a question, but it's something I'm I'm thinking about. Um, actually, I'm going to just say something that Rachel said, which was a really that's, good point. That's fine. Was to do with I don't know, was the, the business of. Um, when you make sculpture, the, the business of sort of dealing with the laws of physics. And, and it's an interesting thing, because I think one of the things I like about making this kind of work is that the work, essentially the work, I mean, I make it, but the work makes itself. And that's, that's where reality comes in, because things have to balance, things find their level, stuff drips, things move, things stick or they don't stick. There's a, there's a way in which, um, when you start to make the kind of work that, that we make sculpture, that, that the physical business of putting it all together dictates an awful lot of what's going to happen along the way. And so the, 
in a, in a sense, you're kind of entering into a slightly unknown process. It's also why it's interesting when, you know, if somebody comes to the studio and asks you what you're doing and you try to explain to them what you're doing, it's very hard to really explain what on earth is going to happen because to a certain extent, you know what you want to happen, but you also know what you sort of, there's, there's a sense you don't really want to know what happens. You want to let that thing form itself and make itself, bend, bend a way that you don't expect, do a thing that you don't expect. And I think that's kind of key to the whole process is that unknown quantity, which is, yeah, it's, it's, it's different, I think, from. Um, yeah, I think all these booming sounds and these booming sounds, uh, they remind me of um, the physicality, the, the, uh, and these bodies here that you all came out to hear this and it's going to be podcasted so you, you actually could have not brought your bodies here and you could have <laughs> just listened to it. And yet, you brought your bodies, and you brought your bodies because you have them, and it's nice to do things with them. Take them out, you know, see some art. Um, and so sculptures like that, I, I find. Um, you know, I, sculpture is a moment to, to stand before something and regard it when, when the whole world could be regarded. You know, it's a privileged moment, and it's... It's nice to put that there, but take away, that's what I was saying about taking away language or architecture or the body, to remove those things, to create a kind of anxiety um, between the viewer and the object uh, so that the viewer really is, 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 in a sense, you have created a purpose for that person to be there. Now, I mean, the purpose in the sense of it's a moment between them. Um, that is, is, is very out of control as you walk around the piece, as you try to know it. Because one of the key things about sculpture uh, is that its surface is available to you, but its interior is not. I mean, there are many pieces that, that expand that and change that. But that discrepancy is a very key thing because it's part of our existence. And this, is, this also goes to the issue of uncertainty. What sculptures do is they bring up how much we don't know, and they bring up a materiality that would just blow us away, you know, uh, I mean, and, and does. Uh, you know, I mean, think of how many sculptors have, have lost their lives or people working with sculpture. I mean, you've got, uh, you know, Smithson going down in a plane. You've got Hess, uh, you know, getting uh, cancer from the chemicals. You've got people working on Richard Serra pieces. You've got... Uh, <laughs> the umbrellas that, you know, from uh, Christo. Anyways, I, uh, that physicality is a very interesting thing. So it's, it, uh, you know, to be able to, to go to a store to see sculpture, uh, to be able to, uh, I like to work down in the L.A. River. You know, it seems like an absolutely ludicrous place to make sculpture. Um, and yet, why wouldn't you? Uh, it's about that, that interaction with things. Um, and then bringing it back into the institution, into this very privileged space, and creating that strange moment between the viewer and the object. They may be very unrelated, too, as a matter of fact. Uh, you know, sculptors find themselves oftentimes just in a car driving to some very distant neighborhood to get some strange material. Painters can get to work, but sculptors oftentimes are involved in, you know, very physical, strange things. I mean, 
Tony Smith driving in his van with all that steel hits the brakes, and that was the end. The steel flew forward and got him. Oh, David Smith, I'm sorry, yes. Right. More, more war stories. Um, I guess in thinking about all these real things about its material presence, I want to think about or shift it over to how we, you know, I guess to go back to how we experience it, but then also how we think about it. Because I have, um, I don't know, in the short time I've been exhibiting, come across a lot of people saying, oh, you know, your work's hard to talk about, your work's hard to write about. And then when people write about it, I generally don't like what they write, but that's normal for an artist. But I think that sculpture is hard to talk about because, in a way, it's younger than painting. It's not younger in terms of its age on earth because there have been sculptures as long as there have been paintings, but in terms of art history and how ideas and uh, movements have been canonized, if you look at modern sculpture, and I mean, I think one of the reasons why right now so much sculpture is talked about in terms of minimalism is minimalism is something people can really grasp and they can really understand because there's clarity in how the work functioned and how it was written about and how it's been historicized and how it's been influential on my generation of artists. But it really also leaves a lot of gaps there. <laughs> you know, like, oh, we just had surrealism, minimalism, you know, or pop, minimalism, and then, oh, what's next? Post-minimalism, that never caught on. And so how do we talk about sculpture? Whereas in with painting, even ignoring the, the uh, isms that have become a kind of legacy of understanding the growth of painting, um, and, and historically, I guess, patronage, you do have always, in addition to the limit of materials and the limit of uh, everything, of it being so just a two-dimensional plane with the pictorial representation, the whole experience of it and the perception of it is, I think, easier to define uh, in terms of how it works, how it operates. I think it's just, it's not better, but it's, it's, there's more clarity to it. Does that make Yeah. Yeah. And, and also painting has a, a more continuous history. Uh, I, I feel like, uh, yeah, I feel like once Duchamp um, exposed the situation about the privileged space of the of the object with the urinal, but also the way that he started creating all these different kinds of shenanigans that can go on as art. Once that happened, that really disrupted um, sculpture. It became very complicated, whereas painting didn't get too taken apart. I mean, the large glass, uh, fabulous work and very much a painting in many respects, but nonetheless, it didn't really undo, that undid sculpture a lot more than it undid uh, painting. So sculpture's really gone through a very difficult time in terms of trying to have a coherent language. Like when, like we teach sculpture, um, and that's just so hard. I mean, I, when I go in and work with painters, it's wonderful. I mean, you can talk about the Renaissance, you can talk about, you know, cubism. It's just one nice, long, flowing language because it's always, there's a nail on the wall that nobody sees and has to talk about. I mean, you know, it comes off, and certain people like Stockholder and, and, and people like that have really broken that open some. But uh, once you get into sculpture, you could be talking about pretty much anything. It's been very, very challenging. Can I ask if this is working? Is anything working? No, it's not. Hi. Oh, yours works. Hello. Does it work? No. <laughs> Yeah, yes. Yes, oh, but I'm not. Does this work? And no. Yeah, I want to, I want to. Um, just based on 
what everyone's been saying so far, I wanted to ask the question or, or ask you to discuss more about your working processes, um, because not only in terms of uh, how the work sort of sits and functions and how we might address it as physical bodies, I think that each of you have very physical ways of making work also, and that varies for each of you, but I think in some ways there's almost an element of performativity to it. And I think that that relationship between the sculpture, um, the end result of the sculpture as an object and the performative, if we can call it that, process of making the work is an interesting one and, and one that you know perhaps viewers don't often understand just from looking at the piece itself. And um, I thought perhaps you could just talk a little bit about how you make a work. Um, just like I'm asked, you know, how do you, why did you want to make this exhibition? What, what is it that gets you sort of going on a piece? And what is that process like for you? Do you want to talk about that, Franz? No, not about this, but um, I thought, excuse me, but as you, as you talk, um, that you use also color. So I thought the color that I uh, thought is this polymer color, what you give there. But on the other hand, it's this that sculptures now um, uh, carry also color sometimes. No, not each one, but, but it's... Um, yeah, and th this was not so much uh, present usually. Uh, and then and, and here are some colored sculptures. And the classical sense of sculptures was stone or metal or the material. It was not, they said it was painted once. And, um, and do you use this, uh, because talking about the working process, so a sculpture, uh, it's not so easy to use colors, uh, because if you're a painter and you, um, you are, so it's not easy to make sculptures maybe. And, but uh, I had, it took me a long time and I asked some painters to paint on my sculptures to, to get used to it, that they have colors and they are bought pink colors. And yeah, this I wanted to say. But but what? Excuse me. What did you My ask question. exactly? <laughs> yeah, how 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 the working day? Yeah. How the working day runs? No, yeah. Um, I'm at the beginning. I was uh, working alone. This was very wrong. Uh, after time, you get you get really fed up if you have. This, it's, it's very solipsistic, you're alone, and not, no response. But then was at art school, and coming out, there was a there was a very much request on market, and so we had to produce and could have a studio. But then it was also alone. But in the years, I got all the more assistance, and um, so I got to be. Do you? It, it did change a lot. So I did begin very alone. And uh, now I have always uh, a lot of uh, young artists uh, um, around, and so so it's it's a little like a, a psychotope, you say, like biotope. You have a psychotope there, and the, this this this. I I I I think it's interesting. I'm used to it, but it it's as if you would project your. In a world outside, maybe this is also the the, the thing of sculpture of of, of of the hapticality. It's not a two-dimensional, uh, just an idea. It's, it 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 have its its present in reality. And and uh, this uh, 
yeah, um, if it uh, goes together with the with the every day, so you live in it's. Um, yeah, I, I, th I think it's. Uh, um, I, I don't know the other ways of living, so I, I, I didn't like them. I, I, I know them a little bit, but I'm not used to. I'm used uh, that, that I did build up this more or less this on circumstance, and, and this works okay. But how is it at you? <laughs> how is it? Um, well, I, I want to go back to color. <laughs> And uh, when I first arrived last night, I ran into Franz in front of his sculptures and I was caught just staring at the way they were painted and it looked like the paint was coming from the inside. And I asked him, you know, so do you paint these fast or slow? So now these are two sculptures then saying what, you know, I, I don't know, I don't know what de Kooning said to so-and-so. No, like, you know, it's like, it's, it's an artist kind of shop talk question. I mean, I can ask Mark who stains his wood and I can ask, Charles, what happens if the, mess, the metal is too rusty and you don't like the patina? And you know, there are all these different kinds of material things that happen about how, how, how we make things, right? So to get back to color, I always think that the color on your sculptures are coming from the inside. And it's all just sort of getting mix, mixed up and put back together. And it does seem fast and it does seem slow. But he told me last night, well, actually, I you know, paint a little. And then paint, you know, but you work on them for a long time. Right, and that you yeah, work yeah. on them, you have a lot of them working at once. That's why I ask you polymer. Polymer uh, dries fast. Right? Poly yeah, polymer. Yeah, yeah, I, I take also colors. It takes yeah. a long time. And it's uh, quite an interesting process. Uh, I, I wasn't used uh, to materials. Um, you have to have patience. I couldn't have patience as a beginner. Was, no, 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 no patience. Oh, patience. I, I, yeah, I had to finish it. And, yeah, yeah. And, um, so, but now I change. And uh, so, so I can work with, with slow drawing and drying processes. And, and uh, yeah. yeah. Uh, Rachel, and also working at a lot of pieces at once. How are yours painted? Especially I'm like the, the Kentucky Fried stuff. Chicken and I don't give away the secret recipe. <laughs> Come on. Uh, is that acrylic? Oil yeah, paint? Yeah. I didn't go to art school. So. <laughs> I mean, I think that I do, have, I do have friends that do you know, performance work and make monochrome paintings and make formal sculpture and you know, make conceptual work you can't see. And I have discussions with all of them about how we work. And generally, uh, if you have a studio practice, you could spend a long time in there being absolutely miserable, feeling like a fraud, and uh, just sort of like wondering why <laughs> endlessly until you just pick up a piece of wood and then you hammer it. And then it, you know, then you think about Yoko Ono, and then something happens, and then finally you have to just get to work, and then maybe you have a deadline, and you have to finish a piece. And uh, maybe you accidentally, maybe you're working on a piece and you bring a plant in the studio and you don't know where to put it and you put it on the sculpture and it looks good. How do I work? Um, and also, can we build on this notion of accidents? Because I think that's a really important one too. Accidents, okay. Yeah, just that's good. Um, think about that. There are, the, the way I work, basically, I have a, I, Typically, I'd have, a, I'd have a sense of what I was going to make, but I'm quite physical, I suppose, in a way. And some of the pieces are quite big, but I don't have any assistance, and I do it all myself. So 
if this if this metal is bent, I'm bending it myself. And I work out of doors in Miami, so um, the big star that's in the exhibition is, is bent around trees in an empty lot close to our house. So it's it's in a sense I'm I'm limited by what I can manage myself, and um, I guess that's a limitation I impose on myself. I suppose I don't have to. If I if I wanted, I suppose I could get things done, but I. Um, I much prefer to do them myself, and I, I think I'd kind of lose touch with everything if I wasn't doing it myself. Um, and uh, it's uh, well, another thing actually was in terms of the woods. The woods actually aren't stained; they're all just that's just the colours they are. So in a way, there's kind of like, but I do use colour in other things. And I actually like to use colour a lot. And I think colours are um, it's a fascinating part of of the of the world we live in. It's it's something that's everywhere, and I I kind of. Color is a really great thing in terms of accidents. Accidental color is almost better than any other color. I think you see these um, plays of color if you just go outside and walk around. I mean, there's these beautiful, in front of the museum here, there's a set of flags on the building opposite where you get these great intermixes of oranges and there's a black prisoner of war flag that hits the orange flag. I mean, these are sort of accidents that are just fabulous. And I think in a way, that's one of the things I like so much about color is the way that it's, it's, uh, it's I suppose the colors I use, I tend to use enamels a lot. Um, I love the way that when cars of different colors pass each other on the highway, you get these crazy color mixings. I like the way um, when someone smacks into your car, the blue comes off and there's gray underneath. All of those kind of things that happen, um, you could call them accidents, but they're quite, um, they're quite serendipitous. They're, they're, they're sort of revelations, which I think are quite beautiful in a way. The rainbow chain. Oh, the chain snake. Yeah. Well, they're they're um they're sprayed up. I mean, they're just sprayed up. Um, I go with the, with those ones. I just I went to a the auto store and I just got all the colors I liked, basically. And um, it's difficult. I just I just I would just start and just spray one color and then add the next color that it needed and then the next. It's very kind of. Um, Compositional in a way that you're you're putting a color on and then you're realizing well that that really needs another color to, to take that down and then you're saying well that color is making it very heavy we need to make it light and then, well the chain itself is very heavy so we need to make it a much lighter color in a way there's sort of a little battle going on I think that's actually what's great about painted sculpture is the way that um, you can take something that's really heavy and you can paint it white and suddenly it feels really light you can you can you can have a little battle with the material you can you can you can deal a sort of, or even, I mean, I suppose that's true of shiny metal, that sometimes shiny metal feels very light, even though it's not heavy. Really, um, and that sort of play in things, I think, is really good. I think it's kind of, yeah. um, the work I did in the 90s had a lot of color in it, and it was, um, and, and my approach to color was very similar to what you're talking about. In fact, I remember one time when I was making these rubber shelf pieces and I was trying to, you know, find color and I was walking, I was, I was traveling, I was visiting and there was some nature and I was like, oh, I'm going to find it out here in this garden or something. And it totally didn't work. But then I saw a parking lot and I saw an arrangement of six cars and I said, well, that's, that's just right. So, you know, it was definitely coming out of the culture and out of the kind of fluidity of, of capitalism in a way. But the work that I make now, I would say since 2001, 
is uh, drained of color. And it, it's very different, I think, um, I don't, I don't want to refer to that capitalist party of, of uh, pleasure. Um, I want things to be severe. And so also to get back to what you were saying about how a work starts or a body of work typically for me, I work serially, like pretty much every year is a different experience. And I look for and generate and create extreme states for myself. Um, so the chair piece that's upstairs soundly through the noise, that title, actually is just a fragment that comes out of a book called Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl, who was a survivor of Auschwitz and Dachau. Um, and The Slave Chemist, that's a reference to Primo Levi, also uh, an author who survived uh, Dachau. Um, you know, these kinds of intense human experiences are very important for me because while we have talked about all the, uh, the, the physicality of, of object making and, and the presentation of it and those issues. Um, once I embrace the convention of sculpture, I actually embrace deeper conventions um, that I would say are very close to poetry. Um, the experience I get when I try to read poetry, it's very hard, you know. I, I brought a book with me on this trip, um, Refusing Heaven by, I think his name's Jack Gilbert. And it's just quite a struggle because it's not how my mind works and I love that because I'm just like, oh God, it's just, you know, it's all right here on this page and I am struggling because I don't have the tools. But that's the point. The point is, is that this is using something we all use, words, text on a page. It's only this long. You could read it in a minute. And I am being thrown into a world that is amazing. And that's what I want with the objects. But I don't, so, but I don't, like I said, repress the language. So I'll read a lot of books or I'll research a subject. I'll get very involved in music. That's been a big part as well. And I create something that affects me so physically. Um, and I, I feel, in a sense, the, a desperate urge um, or a desperate kind of feeling. And I like that. I mean, it's really old-fashioned. I mean, that's the thing. I mean, just, you know, I think that... One of the great things I can do as an artist is to participate in metaphysics and philosophy and these things that, in a sense, are really quite luxurious to deal with um, uh, and, and very open-ended, things that can't really be properly answered. Uh, and I think that that's wonderful. I think, like, you know, if I can't really change capitalism politically and, and if I'm going to participate in it and benefit from it, I will accept a whole lot of those things, but then I'm also going to really have my love of the experience of art on that on that on that really ancient uh, you know stage you know where you're where you're really able to you know be uh, you know in in awe and in wonder and. Uh, you know, I don't find there's enough of that in art for me today. I, I actually don't get a lot out of contemporary art. I get what I get out of culture, th in contemporary culture through music. Um, there are bands that, you know, I feel just really affect me, musicians working that really affect me. And so, th and that goes into the work. It, it, it's something that isn't represented in the work and it's not a subject of the work. It's a part of the process of creating a world that I fully inhabit and that these artworks are from that world.
and and are sort of magically also in this one. So. Can I actually? Um, I'm just going to ask a question. Do we have a little time still? Yeah. Um, I just want to actually take up this question that all of you have been posing, and Charles just brought up explicitly, and I tried to ask in a different way before, sort of how to participate today, kind of. Um, and it's interesting that you are equating color with the cap capitalist <coughs> spectacle, which is something I, I would want to maybe argue with a little bit, because I think the austerity of minimalism, for instance, has become completely commodified and, and sold back to us in a particular way. So it's kind of an interesting conversation, but what I really liked that you, you were talking about and that everybody's been talking about in a way is the real presence of sculpture. But um, it seems as though in the history of sculpture, in fact, if there is something that links together the history of sculpture from the very beginning, it's its commemorative nature, which in fact is um, a positing that something is lost. At least that's what happened until um, you know modernism began and started asserting a, a kind of an object that was loosened from that kind of memorial process where soldiers died and you put up um, a memorial or something like that. Um, and I'm wondering actually in, in terms of that then um, this idea of, of the commemorative and maybe the sculpture as a site of something that isn't just this uber presence for instance. How? Yeah, please. Well, religious sculpture is still a, like a, a space for belief, though, or something. I mean, we could talk. There are certainly differences, but I'm I'm just kind of actually now that I've pulled sculpture and painting apart, actually saying maybe in fact interlinking them is is sort of interesting, and the distinction between color sort of being um, here uh, kind of the decorative element or something. Um, it's always interesting to me that that um, sculptors who use color are called painterly, um, as those sculptures are kind of inherently colorless. So that's something I was thinking about and, and in terms of their, their kind of objecthood in the world, I was thinking about um, Franz's early objects, for instance, and the kind of play that they enabled with the body and the way that there had to be, in addition to viewing, there had to be an actual kind of, um, I don't know, activation or something. So I'm, I'm really just getting to a question about, um, that's very, very simple, which is, um, painting, color, commemoration, and maybe you guys can actually talk a little bit about your own influences so that it could be um, it could be clear the kinds of things you're looking at. I mean, we're looking at these images behind you, um, and we're assuming um, that in some way or another they're linked through this idea of sculpture, but maybe you can talk about other influences as well. Um, Rachel, you maybe also want to say something about the religious aspect, which I think is interesting. Okay. <laughs> Okay, so influences, no, uh, really. Um, or or just, anything else. Uh, by, by incident, I hear these days, is it loud enough? I hear these days um, about religious sculpture. That has, in Christian religion, there was no sculpturing in the, four, in the first 400 centuries because uh, they thought a sculpture, they had them before sculptures in, in, in the antique. Sculpture had been uh, like an idol, like a fetish. Whilst painting pictures was descriptions, was instead of language, instead of the Bible could be described in pictures. Whilst uh, sculpture had the character of idols. Uh, and, and, in, and the Greek temples, in the, what you see, the rest, no? the, but there was inside colorful god, god sculptures, big and 
det dit er da det så så in der første Christian area it was still from the antique tabu on sculpturing this came up in in first century i did never I, after I closed the book and then I forgot what book, book it was. <laughs> so, so it's hard. I, I would have had interest of, about this area, but I did hear just this, because you said, uh, um, you talked about religious yeah, and not religious. It's often said that sculpture is this, this monumental, especially in this city, the monumental. No, maybe it should have another intensity than painting real. But uh, maybe in the maybe as you are now uh, uh, surrounded by uh, yeah, there was to hear the word spectacle. Right? You, one lives in very spectacular circumstances, and um, um, so so one had maybe less sensitivity for the difference between between picture and and. So, so as they thought, uh, as in the beginning of um, of 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 the of well, is it modernity after the antique? What was afterwards? Begin. Now begin. Is this also called? <laughs> there begins modernity at the end of antique. Better somebody else. Talk a little bit about the golden calf <laughs> being smashed, or a statue of Saddam Hussein falling. <laughs> it's like that. I mean, they did because they do both things, yeah. and in terms yeah. of fetish and adultery and realness. But I don't think we're addressing your question. But I, I just thought maybe we could talk about influences. Influences. I wasn't sure I was going to make art, and I wasn't in college to make art, and then I was wasting time in a library. And I mean, I'm, I'm okay. I'm, I'm being more dramatic about the story, but I read about Chris Burden getting shot, and that made art seem more urgent for me um, because I went to museums as a kid, and I didn't have artists in my family, and I couldn't, I couldn't relate a lot to it. And then it was the '80s, and contemporary art kind of like, you're turned off now, and I was turned, and I'm turned off now, but I was also turned off then. <laughs> and, but I wasn't turned off in the 90s, but maybe it was my age, I don't know. But uh, we've talked about this a little bit in, in terms of trends and cycles. But anyway, there was an urgency to Chris Burden's work that was immediate and certainly bodily, and um, it, it, made, it was like, wow, he really had something to say. You know, it's kind of like the Bob Dylan documentary that was on PBS last year where they would. They had a clip of of an art of a painter, and from the 60s. And they used to be like, we didn't. We didn't used to go around and talk about you know shows and exhibitions about whether that they were any good. They'd be like, oh man, did you go to that gallery? Yeah. Did he have anything to say? Like, what do you have to? What that work have to? You know, you go see those sculptures. What do they have to say, right? So so what does it mean to make it art and put it in the world? Is there an urgency to that? And when the world is falling apart, and I mean, I feel, that's why I was saying, you know, you feel worthless sometimes in the studio. What is the process? The process is tricking yourself into believing this actually matters sometimes in the, in the light of everything else going on. So there's some, I mean, and this is not banging the nail as much as the kind of mental trickery that has to take the participation. Why is it important to participate and, and where is meaning? So monumentality, memorialization, religion, fallen idols, I mean, all these things that are in a tradition of sculpture publicly, 
have really nothing to do with what we do as contemporary artists. I mean, we're, I mean, I, you know, we're indulgent and we like play off our whims and go into rivers and you know see what we come up with and you know a lot of some people like it, some people don't. <laughs> You're asking about influences, yeah. basically. Um, when I when I first went to art school, I was kind of, I was making sculpture, but I was at school in London. I wasn't doing very much actually. Um, and then I I went to Germany for a year to Frankfurt, and um, there's a big difference between an art school in England, where everybody's great, you know, everybody's very kind and everything, and it's it's long discussion, everything's okay, and you get to Germany, and it's it's really. Um, a load of very big presences. These professors are kind of big machers, and they, 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 um, they, they will tell you if it's bad, and they generally don't tell you it's good. It's a very different kind of system. That's very impressive. It's a big change of your English, particularly as well. Um, Kippenberger was teaching there when I went there. He was, a, you know, he was a big presence. And also, my wife, Dara, who's here, was studying with Kabelka. So she brought me to a class that was actually being taught by um, Ken Jacobs, who's also a brilliant American presence. And he showed a film by Jack Smith, this film, Scotch Tape, which is a, it's a brilliant Super 8 film where, where the, um, the piece of tape is left on the lens of the camera, and then the camera itself is, is kind of, um, I think it's trawling through Lincoln Center when they're knocking it down, and it's kind of, the camera's kind of crawling around the rebar. It's a very, it's a brilliant kind of really free-form, simple piece of work. And, um, I know. I think it's a lot like a sculpture. I suppose it, it just struck me that the things going on in that in that piece of work, these the, the chance elements, this piece of tape, this rebar, the action, the movement, all of that, um, the, the the idea of kind of making something um, really just for your own reasons, without there's, there's there's no logic per se. It's just your own logic, your own your own procedure of making, and that that was kind of a huge influence. I think that kind of took me a long way. I think to making it. Um, the other thing I'd say is I think there's there's also great stuff like, it's going to sound sort of random, but things like William Blake. There's, there's all sorts of things that go on that are sort of, um, um, I guess, points in our history that are sort of, um, we have these characters that are sort of transcendental. They, they, deal, they, deal with, they deal with this like, weird connection and detachment between sort of color and form and meaning. Um, and I think that that, in a way, that, that's something I think the play, you know, when I use lights, I think it's, it's it's often said, oh, you, you, when you use lights, everyone talks about flavor. But actually, there's, there's something about light. There's this quality to light where, where the thing, at once it exists as the thing there, but actually the light is something quite separate. The light is something on its own. You can't really hold it. You can turn it on, but after that, the thing's escaped into vapor. The thing is living its own life. And I think that quality is a really kind of major quality that you, you know, and, and it's something that's, thank God, available in all these cheap light fittings as well. So it's almost like we can grab hold of something way beyond. So I think that's why. And I, I, similarly, I, I make these pieces with, with highway signs. That, and there's something about these reflective materials, again, where you, you, you create something that's there, but the thing is also floating six inches in front. When the, when the material is reflecting, that color, that light, is, is also somewhere else completely. And it it's, uh, kind of becomes a thing on its own. And I think that's a sort of, yeah. Um, yeah, so many influences, and, and it would be so much fun to just talk about them all, but I could just pick up one of the things that you were talking about, structuralist filmmaking. Like, that was a big influence on me. When I first came to New York to go to the Whitney program, and 
you know, we were reading Marx, Karl Marx and Frankfurt School and then got involved going to the collective and anthology and seeing Ken Jacobs and Kabelka and Warhol and uh, just Tony Conrad, so many really amazing things. With structuralist filmmaking, you have, uh, you know, I would say a primary preoccupation with the structure and the apparatus starting from the camera and the and the film stock to the architecture of the room, you know, that it's presented in. And, and then within that, all this place to fool around with image and memory. Um, I, I think my favorite would be um, Frampton's Nostalgia. Uh, it's an amazing film that deals with memory and, and language. Uh, so that stuff really probably affects me from what you've heard me already being saying about how important the notion of categ the category of sculpture actually is for me. In, in many ways, I would say, you know, my, you know, immersion into the world of structuralist filmmakers definitely created a template for me then to ask the very questions about, well, what is inherently uh, significant about objects, uh, freestanding objects in particular? And uh, so, yeah, so that, that was a beautiful uh, influence. But then I also would go to this issue that you mentioned about commemorativeness. And, um, that's most certainly in my work, and will just get more so in time. I, you know, I think the works I make, uh, they're very elegiac. I think they are very much uh, full of, of, you know, so much uh, longing and sadness. Uh, you know, I love those things because, in fact, as as we were talking, you know, there's the materiality of the world, and and you know, in our bodies. And then there's just that crazy thing going on inside all the time, you know. And and in our discourse, in our you know, it's so elusive. Um, you know, it's it, the 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 sense of time. You know, like the steel in in our sculptures that, that you know, if we use steel, you know, that's been around for a very long time and will continue to be there. So that sense of time, that huge long expanse, is present in the object. And yet, this is just this tiny little moment, you know, and these things will be kept in nice little containers and, you know, in, in, in you know, climate-controlled storerooms and things like that. But, you know, within, you know, a century, you know, it'll all be underwater, you know. Um, <laughs> and that's really what I want to address in my work is, is, the, is the incredibly privileged moment we are at in terms of uh, civilization. And and how that moment is going to change. You know, I have a 10-year-old son who also I work from his drawings, and I think, you know, that's very much trying to honor those drawings, uh, try to capture, in a sense, or, or preserve that purity, that, that, that vision that, you know, we all have had, but changes as we get older and gets very complicated and we get filled with so many, so many contradictory thoughts. But in this moment when he was seven and doing these drawings, there was something there that just, uh, I looked at these things and I said, oh my God, this is a roadmap to the beginning of time. If I need to get there, I can just look at this and I'll find it. And there were stacks of drawings. I mean, it was amazing. And they were all abstract and they were all so compelling and full of some kind of guided intention. Um, and uh, so that, you know, that's, that. It, maybe it's my romantic imagination, but uh, yeah, I see things as being, uh, very much about uh, commemorating, I think you know the wonder of of our of our culture, of our ability to articulate and to uh, you know and to create myth, even when 
there's almost there's no purpose for a myth at this point. You know, myths have dissolved and and rightly so. I mean, they need to dissolve further. It's really what we're you know presently killing each other based on is is incredible belief systems that are tied to archaic texts. That's you know. I think I'm just Can we, going. I think we should open it up for questions because we're going to run out of time, and I'm sure you have some. So, um, yeah. Um, I thought about my question, and I wrote it down before I asked you. Can you speak a little louder? Sure. Um, when you are creating your sculptures, how would you affirm the moment, the instant, the emotion, the concept, translate into your sculpture? For example, when a painter brushes his strokes, he is capitalizing this accumulation of things instantly. Is the sculpture an accumulation of collective instances, instances capturing a particular ideal or a collection of ideas? What I'm also trying to say is how do you how do sculptures use sculpture as a <laughs> I think in, uh, before this bit of a, of a exchange we were having about the painting on the sculpture and the fast and the slow was to maybe address what you were saying about the brushstrokes and a kind of tradition of expressionism um, through abstract expressionism, but I think it existed in other forms of painting prior, in which emotion is conveyed through action, right? That you see the depiction and the energy in the mark, right? That make, that's like, oh, that's emotive. And I think sculptures are slower and work differently, and the working process is different. So you can express the same thing a different way. <laughs> so it might not, does that make sense? It doesn't, it doesn't take the same form. It takes a different form, but it gets, at the, it gets to the same place. There's different kinds of painting. I and mean, if you look at an Agnes Martin painting, that's a painting that I, I get really emotional and like love Agnes Martin. Um, and I don't think that happens in a moment or in an instant. I also think that we have quite long moments. I mean, that's maybe the thing as well. <laughs> I mean, it's different. I think, I think that when, when we're doing things, it's just like one big moment that we're in. I think probably we true of all of us. Well, um, I go back and forth from New York to LA a lot and I'll start on pieces and I'm for instance I'll, I'll make a piece that will be very I would say commemorative you know like supporting this fragile thing and all this and then I'll come back to the studio it'll be two weeks later a whole other you know like a lifetime of experiences in New York come back go in there and I look at that and in a second I realize what's wrong and I go over and I flip it off of it and it falls down to the side, and I say, yes, that's the way the world is. Though I want it here, it's here. And you know, it's not that bad. In fact, <laughs> it'll be okay. And, I, and I, that's also some, one thing I want to just quickly throw in is that I think of sculpture as something that's broken in a world that is breaking down. And that for its brokenness, it can say so much. There's so much that can be said because of this, of this you know, of the flaws and the ineptness of it that, um, 
that, that goes beyond what we typically do in culture, which is we try to you know, pull things together in a very optimistic um, a, a summary way. But I think the unraveling is, is, is also very interesting. So the archaicness of sculpture is very fascinating to me. Thank you. <laughs> yes. Now we're talking about it. Wilderness is this band that I'm really into. They're Baltimore, so it's right near you all, and it is incredible stuff. I mean, it's it's art rock. Uh, it's it's a cross between like Joy Division and Pill, uh, you know, Public Image Limited, and. It's, it's devastating music, I love it. Um, they took three years to make the first album and it was just phenomenal. So that, I like that, it's extreme music and I listen to it down in the river and it puts me in a whole other space. So that's one thing. Um, the books I'm reading presently for the new work I'm doing, um, I got a book on herons because I'm working from the excrement that the great blue herons drop along the LA River, I'm sculpting that. I got a book of Gil Scott Heron's uh, poetry, and also I've you know downloaded all his music, and I'm very interested in him. He's the black uh, jazz and uh, poet uh, from the 70s. Unfortunately, he's in jail now, and I love it. You know his famous piece, "The Revolution Will Not Be Televised," and Whitey on the Moon, and I just love it. I love it. Uh, and then I got a new book on Paleolithic. Um, drawings that it has a really interesting new um, premise about who made those drawings and why, and it's not at all about spirituality. So it's a new, a new idea. I want to know why that's funny, like, <laughs> for me to answer. Uh, yeah, are there other questions? That's better. <laughs> there are lots of hands. Yeah, go ahead. To, to what extent is your work um, an implementation of a conception that you have in advance and you're kind of moving forward and, and sketch, sketching out the, the details and, and, and how much of it emerges as a result of doing the process and doing the work? And can you, do you really predict what you're going to end up with when you start or is it something that just happens I mean, that's I, yeah. For me, I think I, you know, I'd like to think that I know what I'm going to make, and I certainly go in with some sense of what I'm going to make, but it very rarely comes out that way. So, in a way, I, I think half the, for me anyway, half the business is getting off, getting started, and and at a certain point along the way, the work kind of takes over, and and for various reasons, physical as much as anything, it's just stuff goes how it goes, things bend or break or things, you know, I think I'm going to be able to take this big sheet and twist it into this shape, but it throws me flat on the floor and it's a different <laughs> shape. And then, you, you know, you, you end up with what you end up with and that's kind of, but, uh, but I think you sort of have to have, in order to begin, you sort of have to have a sense of what, where you're trying to go as much as just to get yourself going. And then when you're on your way, then you, you see where it takes you, I think. Yeah, that's that. I, I, I totally agree, and I tell my students similarly. It's great to start with an idea. 
there's nothing wrong with that, but then get ready to just pick up every strange thing that comes along the way, and then it just gets so much better. And I also think that uh, and it's great because there's so many different artists that have so many different ways of working, and so that's why I hate generalizations. Like, it would be horrible to know what you were doing before you started because then it would be boring. It's like the cliche, why make it if you already know what it's going to be? But then I think about Jeff Koons, and I recently saw this enormous, uh, you know, shiny blue toy. Uh, now I'm getting tired. You know what I'm talking about, those balloon dogs. <laughs> um, Anyway, you have to have a lot of, of planning and engineering and organization in order to execute something like that, and it's a fabulous sculpture. And he certainly knew exactly what he was doing before he started it. So there are lots of different ways of working. For myself, I think like Mark was saying, you sort of have to have the direction. But the other thing is that, you know, as we all make more work, one, one work leads to the other, and one idea leads to another. And you, have, you make a piece, and something doesn't work out, and it gives you an idea for the new one. So I never really know what I'm doing when I start a new piece, but I would say it's culminated from all the sculptures and photographs and other things I've done, that it's sort of each thing builds into the next. I think I'm autonomous. <laughs> I could make it. Now, um, about planning and planning the work, exactly. It's, it's also interesting um, uh, discipline, but um, now it, it, it uh, it's, but it's, 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 it's very complicated. Not you have to work really a lot and, 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 and have to know technical details. So it depends on the size. At the big sizes, uh, you cannot change anything. I do know some big uh, outside sculptures and uh, this you have to plan really. But the mo uh, um, working out the model, I think this is then the place where spontane ideas come, but if you really work it out, it's, 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 it's too, it would be too complicated. Or does it take the fun, change. takes the fun away? No, <laughs> I don't do this. Uh, this you don't do this fun. for fun. No, no, this I don't do uh, the work because I, I have some assistants who make this. I don't. No, but I mean, if you knew ahead, it, it goes back to this thing. If you already know what the thing is, do you need to make it? You know, this kind of. So no, no. It's, uh, the, uh, this I think this is the the luxury that that you have that you can do it. This the uh, small luxury that you could do what you want. 